Welcome to the 374th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Tom Ewing and Catherine Randall, co-authors of How Did We Get Here? What are Droplets and Aerosols and How Far Do They Go? A Historical Perspective on the Transmission of Respiratory Infectious Diseases. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We are scheduling COVID calls now out to the end of 2021 and have received a number of great suggestions for future shows and guests to feature. So please do be in contact. As of today, November 9th, 2021, there are 5,056,189 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is a news piece from May 14th, 2020, which I'm reading today in part because I'm interested to hear my guest's perspective on it. The title is, Why Are There Almost No Memorials to the Flu of 1918? This appeared in the New York Times by David Siegel. At Hope Cemetery in Bear, Vermont, a five-ton granite bench sits on a triangle of grass. It's a mere five feet high and three feet deep, which seems modest in scale relative to the calamity it commemorates. 1918 Spanish Flu Memorial reads an inscription on the front, over 50 million deaths worldwide is chiseled on the back. Installed two years ago, the bench was underwritten by Brian Zeccanelli and his wife, Karen, to mark the 100th anniversary of The Wayside, a restaurant they own in nearby Montpelier. It opened in 1918, just a few months before influenza scythed through the area, killing nearly 200 people, the largest loss of life of any town in the state. One of the dead was Mr. Zeccanelli's grandfather, Giminio, an Italian immigrant who worked as a craftsman in a local granite factory, one of many in a town that still bills itself as the granite capital of the world. Mr. Zeccanelli knew little about his grandfather's life, which lasted just 35 years, so he spent months researching his death. He quickly became fascinated not just by the flu, but by its near total disappearance from our collective memory. When I looked for memorials to the flu, I found nothing, he said. I mean, there was a plaque in Colorado, maybe something small in Australia, and that was it. I thought, this is crazy. This flu changed America forever. It changed the world forever. I've got to do something. Flu ravaged civilization for nearly three agonizing years on a scale that had not been seen since the bubonic plague wiped out at least one-third of Europe's population in the late Middle Ages. Some 675,000 Americans died, more than the United States' the casualties of all the wars of the 20th century combined. 
This article, again, was written in 2020. But soon after the slaughter ended and for decades after, the pandemic somehow vanished from the public imagination. With rare exceptions, it didn't crop up in novels, paintings, plays, or movies. Even scholars overlooked the subject. The first major account of the flu, epidemic, and peace, later reissued as America's Forgotten Pandemic, was published in 1976 by Alfred Crosby, who was baffled by the absence of any impression left by the disaster. On searches for explanations for the odd fact that Americans took little notice of the pandemic, he wrote, and then quickly forgot whatever they did notice. Historians say the pandemic sank into oblivion largely because of World War I, the very cataclysm that hastened the spread of the virus via millions of moving troops. The war and its aftermath overshadowed the disease, too. For the Allies, there was a victory to celebrate in November 1918, and triumphalism was the mood of the era. By 1920, Isolationism regained its pre-war popularity, and the flu was regarded as just another malignant foreign force, both in the United States and elsewhere. It remains a mystery where the pandemic began, but the historian Kenneth Davis notes that many countries tagged it with a name suggesting foreign origins. Germans called it the Russian pest, the Russians called it the Chinese fever, and in Spain, where virologists say it certainly did not begin, it was known as the Naples soldier. When the centenary of the outbreak rolled around two years ago, there were no anniversary events, said Nancy Bristow, author of American Pandemic, The Lost Worlds of the 1918 Influenza Epidemic. I was asked to give talks only at places that were discussing the war. Sort of, oh, this happened at the same time. Can you come talk about it? In Vermont, Mr. Zeccanelli decided he was uniquely situated to light a torch in this darkness. His grandfather and dozens of his colleagues perished, he learned, because Geminio worked in a poorly ventilated granite factory where he and others breathed in vast amounts of dust. A lung disease called silicosis was an occupational hazard and left them vulnerable to the influenza. More than 100 granite workers in Bear died in the span of three weeks in 1918. Health officials reported that the town ran out of caskets and used wicker baskets to transport the deceased. People were so terrified by the illness that a local florist found that grieving families had fled their homes, leaving the bodies of their loved ones behind. Volunteers are needed, wrote the local newspaper the day before Chiminio died on October 10th in a plea for nurses. Will you respond, they wrote. The industry that contributed to Chiminio's early demise would help valorize him. Brian Zeccanelli approached Rock of Ages, a granite factory in Bear, which did more than just help design and then build the memorial. Mr. Zeccanelli would not discuss dollar amounts, but he says that the company created a work worth three times as much as he paid. Markers for victims of the pandemic are just simple slabs, said Mr. Zeccanelli, offering a video tour via iPhone. They were burying people as fast as they could. About 100 people attended the unveiling of the memorial on October 28, 2018. It was a brisk and overcast day. Three members of the clergy offered words of condolence and prayers in a ceremony that lasted less than an hour. It was a solemn, uplifting event, Mr. Zeccanelli said, and far more satisfying than any centenary idea he could have dreamed up for the wayside, which, like every restaurant in Vermont, was closed for weeks at that time when the story appeared in 2020. But you know, he said the restaurant survived one pandemic, and it will survive this one, too.
Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. Let me introduce my guests. Tom Ewing is a professor of history and associate dean at Virginia Tech. His current research projects include studies of influenza pandemics, including the 1889 to 1892 Russian flu and the 1918 to 1919 Spanish flu and a history of Virginia's first tuberculosis sanatoria, Catawba and Piedmont in collaboration with Catherine Randall and Kiana Wilkerson. In 2020, he worked with graduate students from Virginia Tech to understand the use of masks during the 1918 pandemic, which resulted in essays published in the Washington Post, Health Affairs Blog, the Items series of the Social Science Research Council, and Nursing Clio. Catherine Randall is a visiting lecturer of technical communication at the University of Central Florida. Her most recent research projects include a rhetorical history of the scientific understanding around airborne transmission, and a history of Piedmont and Catapia tuberculosis sanatoria, and an exploration of the role of health communication in refugee resettlement in the United States. Catherine Randall and Tom Ewing, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just to get a sense of where you're calling from and, and what the pandemic situation looks like there. Catherine, can I start with you on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I recently moved to Wilmington, North Carolina uh, from Blacksburg, Virginia. So uh, I'm in Wilmington now. I have a first grader. So my view of the pandemic situation seems to always be filtered through the, the lens of school and what the schools are doing. Uh, we do have a mask mandate here. The school board right now is actually voting on whether or not to keep the mask mandate uh, for the next month in the state of North Carolina, the law says that the school boards have to meet once a month to determine if they're going to keep the mask ma mandate. So uh, that's that's our situation here. We, we do have a decline in cases, uh, but we'll see what happens with the holidays. Has that, let me just ask you just a follow up, um, yeah. that mask mandate issue has become as um, heated as other parts of yeah. the country. Yeah. I know that, you know, obviously the press is going to follow school board meetings where people are yelling and screaming. That can't be everywhere, but is that in your in your town as well? Yes, uh, Wilmington is a very purple city uh, politically, and I think you see that. You know, we know the mask wearing has become kind of a political identity marker in some areas, and I think that it's safe to say that that's the way it is here as well. Um, the October school, one of the October school board meetings, I believe it was October might have been September, had to be ended early because the crowd became so unruly that they had to shut down the meeting. Um, and then the school board got special training in Robert's Rules of Order <laughs> so that they hopefully could keep more order in the next meeting, which I believe was just virtually. So this may be, I, this one, they did offer an in-person option, uh, but I know there were a couple meetings where they only offered them virtually for a while, I think, so that they could get their ducks in a row. So yeah, it's You're definitely become a bit of the uh, that sticking point where people are really passionate about what they think they need to do to keep their kids safest. Your daughter or son is troubled by that. Okay. With that, where's the mask? And oh, she's totally fine. I mean, she's, she's been wearing them. She did part-time in-person kindergarten last year in Blacksburg. Uh, and she's now in first grade here and wears a mask with no complaint all day. So I know this because you put it on Twitter. You you need to tell the story about her vaccine. Oh yes, uh, she was she was not very. She got vaccinated on Saturday. We were, were very excited about it. Uh, she thought that the vaccine would hurt um, in her terms one decillion times. 
Um, she was she had built it up to be a very big deal in her mind. Um, there was much wailing, yeah, much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and but after the the shot, she said she barely felt it. She said it only hurt this much. Uh, so anyone watching, you can pass this along to your children. It did apparently did not hurt much at all. And then um, she didn't have any side effects at all and proceeded to tell people that even though her mom and dad got sick from their shots, she didn't get sick at all. Uh, so she she got a sense of moral superiority out of that, I think. Well done. First graders out there listening, as well as parents, you heard it here. Thank you for that, Catherine. Really appreciate that. that yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Tom, let me bring you in. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there? So I'm in, in Blacksburg, where the, the main Virginia Tech campus is, um, which is a um, university town in a fairly rural part of Southwest Virginia. Um, you know, and, and we, uh, I taught virtually all of last year. Uh, my classes were all online, which is the case for the vast majority of Virginia Tech courses, um, all those students were back on campus, but they were mostly doing doing online courses with a few exceptions. Uh, this fall, where most courses are in person, um, so I started teaching in August wearing a mask um, and have been doing so consistently. Um, the university is, is more open, certainly, than it was last year, um, but there's still quite a few people working either full-time remotely or um, at least some of the time. So it's, it definitely has a different feel to it. Uh, we do have a university mandate to, to wear masks in, in all indoor spaces. Um, and that's mostly been, been enforced. Uh, my daughter graduated from uh, high school a few years ago, so I don't track the, the uh, school system with quite the same level of, of um, personal connections that I used to. Uh, but as, as Katie knows, um, there, there were issues here. You know, this Blacksburg is part of a, a county school system and um, several of the schools in the county are much more rural, you know, and so there have been differences within the system um, between parents and, and, and teachers and administrators over the uh, the necessity for masks and, and so on. Um, it's, it's still, after a year and a half, it's still, it still makes me pause when I see, you know, children lined up for the bus wearing masks. You know, there's just something that makes me think, wait, that's, that's not right. Oh, wait, that's what they're doing. Um, you know, and I, I very much appreciate you reading that that New York Times uh, story. Um, I think part of what, and this is the reason I asked, I asked Catherine about her daughter, um, you know, we all have a personal trajectory uh, in this pandemic, you know, and, and you reading the story from May of 2020, I'm, I'm remembering where we were in May of 2020, you know, in terms of the disease, but then also where we were in 2018 with the centennial of 1918, and then what was happening in Vermont in October of 1918, you know, and, and so I think uh, on some level, we are all historians now of COVID. Um, we're all doing what historians do, which is try and make sense not only of what's going on right now, but, but what just happened to us. Yeah, I, I was really... Um... One thing I, I'm glad you enjoyed that story. Maybe we'll talk about it more. But the um, the fact that this in, this man felt that it was also about not just about the disease and the big number, but it was about his his grandfather. I mean, it was about a, it was about a small number, but the most important one for him. And I think that's where this sort of constant problem of quantification—it's not a new problem in pandemic—plays um, in because past a certain number, it's hard for people to retain an emotional attachment. 
um, to the disaster. I, there's one thing just before the moment passes, Tom, I wanted to ask you and, and Katie, if you wanted to come in on this as well. Um, we don't have to break down the whole governor's race of Virginia. However, from a distance, it was hard for me to see how much COVID played in that campaign. It looked like it looked like it wasn't very much, or at least from my vantage point, it wasn't what I thought. And as a, I, I see it as a kind of a precursor of coming um, governor's races and other, you know, national level political events on the horizon. I'm sort of trying to get the measure of how much COVID is going to play into that. I don't know, Tom, would you mind sharing a, your take on that? Sure. Um, I agree with you. You know, I think if, if you were to do any kind of a list of um, what got the most attention in the media, you know, certainly the exit polls, what, what people were talking about, um, COVID in and of itself was not high on the list, you know, and certainly over the last year and a half, Virginia has not had the divisions over COVID response that we've seen in other states. Um, you know, the, the governor in Virginia is a medical doctor, um, you know, and he was pretty consistent um, in following the, the CDC uh, guidelines and, and not necessarily following the, the position of the Trump administration in a way that a, a lot of other governors, particularly in, in the Southeast, in Midwest and mountain states did, um, you know, so I think that that kind of removed the issue as a political one. You know, the, 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 the Democrats couldn't really run on Northam's record and, and the Republicans didn't really attack it. I would say where it really was an issue are in the kind of um, secondary effects, um, you know, so the economy, you know, and the, the issues around uh, labor shortages, um, the, um, you know, supply of goods, fuel prices, um, uh, the, you know, there was almost no discussion of the, of the benefits, you know, the child tax benefits and all these other things that came from the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think there was a, a kind of sense of, of um, weariness of, you know, of being, um, you know, having put up with a difficult situation for a long time, uh, the uncertainty of it, um, and also just to go back to the earlier topic, the, the school systems and the school boards and, the, you know, the dissatisfaction with uh, remote schooling and the uh, allegations, you know, of, of unresponsive um, school boards and teachers unions, which in Virginia is kind of hilarious because they don't have a union. Um, you know, so I think it was a secondary effect. And I would say going forward, that's going to be one of the questions, you know, that if, if a year from now or 11 months from now, there's still this sense of, pandemic fatigue, um, I think that will be a, a real issue. Um, you know, and, and to go back to our historical comparisons, that certainly wasn't the case in 1918, 1919. You know, there was much more sense, we turn the corner, everything's behind us, we're, we're moving on. And um, there have been a couple moments in the last year and a half when I thought we were at that point. Um, we're kind of there, moving there maybe now, um, but we've been disappointed before. You know, I'm thinking if you go back to this this past spring um, when the vaccines were widely available and there were, you know, there's discussions of changing the, the mask regulations and other things. And then we had the, the Delta variant and people refusing to get vaccinated and so on. You know, so I think that that to me becomes the question. How much more, you know, do, not only do people put up with these requirements and these limits, but at what point do they does their general dissatisfaction turn into a, a more political position? 
Catherine, I thank you for that, Tom. I just I don't know if you wanted to add anything onto that, Catherine, or your own sense of what you saw playing out in this in this last campaign. Is it a bellwether for things to come? Do you think? You know, I was I was surprised that it wasn't more of an overt talking point. Um, you know, just going back off of like what gets airtime in in media, uh, local and, and national. But I think Tom's right that it was there implicitly as far as the people are tired, people are, are burned out. I also think, you know, it was, that was overshadowed by kind of the panic, the moral panic around like CRT and, and trans bathroom panic and, and that kind of thing. And I think the similar talking points come up in all those issues, right. Where people feel like, and this is again, kind of through the lens of the school board and the schools where people are, seeing certain actions as a form of repressing themselves or their children and that we got that messaging a lot, especially when like in the early days of masking, I mean, especially, I mean, even now, but where the idea of covering your face um, for a public health benefit um, was an act of government overreach or, or an act of repression. And so I think that kind of um, sentiment comes out came came out in these other issues as well that maybe uh, came to the forefront. Um, so I, I, I don't know if it'll be like explicitly how people responded to COVID will become the political talking point, but I think those that kind of um, a priority or or that that talking point will be similar in terms of what people are expected to sacrifice for public good or or what the government can and can't tell you to do that. And that's not new, but it, the pandemic fed that, I think, in, in, uh, in, in uh, maybe not a new way, but kind of like a new for 2020 kind of way. There's one other uh, thing I wanted to talk about before I ask you about your articles and other you know, recent research, um, which is actually just to, the question I've been asking everybody about how they remember this pandemic. And Catherine, let me ask you that question first. Is there a memory, something that really um, sticks in your mind of this time period? Yeah, um, and it, it's one that makes me look bad, um, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway, um, because it fits into our, our conversation. So very early on, um, I had a friend and it was one of those things where it was like her sister-in-law's brother works at the CDC or, or something, you know, and this was maybe around February and she, she was telling me and she was like, you know, this COVID thing is going to be it's going to be bad. Um, they're going to need to close schools um, and we may need to start ration or um, stocking up on certain supplies, you know, toilet paper, food. And I, I laughed and I said, that's absurd. Like, that's not that's not going to happen. And she was like, yeah, they're saying it could be as bad as the Spanish flu. And I was like, there are multiple factors that made the Spanish flu so bad. The movement of troops, right? The, the shortages of medical professionals because of the war. Like there were multiple factors. We know way too much now to replicate the conditions of the Spanish flu. And I have since um, apologized, obviously, to that friend and been like, I, you were you were absolutely right. Um, and your, your informant obviously knew much more than I did. Uh, and I, I think of that moment often, especially when um, we passed the uh, the mortality or the um, estimated mortality numbers for uh, the Spanish flu, what, last month? Um, and it's I, I thought about that moment and me being so confident that that is not something that we could expect with with this. I really. Uh, yeah. But here we are. So, thank you for sharing that. I don't think that makes you look 
bad at all. I, I think the fact that you knew the historical analog and felt like we would meet the moment with some rooting in history was seems pretty rational to me. And I made similar kinds of uh, announcements at the time as well, including eschewing wearing a mask because my brother told me that I shouldn't. Um, and I it, very early, like in February, and I said, mm -hmm. yeah, and the peer pressure from my brother forced me to put my mask in my in my bag. And then, you know, I've kept kept a dialogue going uh, for a couple of months after that about who was right and who was wrong. Because, of course, the CDC was saying something. I'm, yeah. still, I'm still trying to defend my position. You see, it's still an issue for me. Yes, but, of course. Uh, well, the CDC did make a very abrupt about face with mask wearing. Um, what got we're... me was they had just turned the corner on recommending masks. And I walked into uh, Aldi in the town next to Blacksburg. And everyone else in the store was wearing some sort of makeshift, you know, bandanas or, or shirts or something. And I had walked in with a bare face. And I remember being very embarrassed. And I was like, oh, I can't do this again. And that was that was my point for yeah, those the stories from the early pandemic. Thank you for sharing that. And they seem yeah. like they do come from such a different time. Tom, um, same question to you. Do you mind sharing a, a personal memory? Yeah, no, that's a I, I also have examples like yours and, and Catherine's of of Mis mistakes and underestimating and all the rest of it. I think for me, um, it's the it's the personal losses in this pandemic. Um, you know, some of which did affect me, but I think it's also an appreciation for um, healthcare workers. Um, you know what they went through, particularly in the early stages. People who who take care of uh, in childcare centers or elder care, um, and I think it it. It, it fundamentally changes the way I think about the history also having experienced this now, um, you know, and so for me, that's what I, I think I will remember going forward, um, you know, how this, this came directly into our lives in, in a way we, we didn't expect. Um, I mean, I think it's a little unusual because of the work I do, you know, so much of my interactions with people have been on this platform <laughs> electronically, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's, that's the other piece that I think I will, I probably always will associate with, with this pandemic, you know, is this, is this kind of interface and the distance, you know, you have between people. Um, you know, I, I, I remember the version of what you said, Catherine, the, the, like the first time I went back into a store after not going into a store for weeks, you know, and having that, just having that, that level of anxiety about being close to people, you know, and at that point, I mean, this would have been well, like that article, this probably was April, 2020, you know, at that point there were, people were wearing masks, but just feeling like, like, I don't want to be close to people. You know, I, I like, I'm going the other direction in the, in the aisle. And I think that, that almost sort of visceral, uh, physical kind of memory. I think that's what I hope I, I, I keep from this, from this experience. Just to follow up quickly, Tom, just kind of a historian's question. Um, but what I, one thing you said there really struck me, um, you, you think you'll read the sources from the 19th century and the early 20th century differently now? Yeah, I do already. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think I'm, I, it, but in two ways, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm more attentive to the stories, um, the the people that were affected, um, and and you know, kind of again having that that sense of empathy from what we've seen around us for the last year and a half, and then appreciating, um, you know, what what that was like in in the in the context of a historical epidemic. I mean, I think it's it's similar 
uh, you know, to what military historians have done, you know, and the kind of ability to think in terms of what's the what's the life like on the on the battlefield, and then how do you how do you try and convey that? Um, the the place that's really shifted for me is actually uh, thinking about uh, public health experts in the context of an epidemic, um, and I think that's generally true of the the way people study 1918. You know, the Alfred Crosby's book was mentioned in that New York Times article and. Uh, Nancy Bristow, and, and if you haven't had Nancy Bristow on the on this COVID conversations, you should. She's fabulous. Um, but I think that generally historians, when they looked at 1918 up until two years ago, were pretty skeptical of public health public health experts. You know, they they really think they got it wrong. Um, they thought they were they misjudged the pandemic. They acted too late. Um, they didn't do enough. They were inconsistent. Um, you know, and, and having been through this, I have a lot more empathy for them. You know, they were dealing with a very unprecedented, complicated, confusing situation, and they, they made mistakes. Um, but I think I've become more attentive to, uh, you know, what were they thinking at the time? Why did this make, this make sense to them as a decision? Um, you know, rather than sort of stepping back and saying, well, look how bad it got. They must have done something, um, must have done something wrong, you know, which doesn't keep me from being very critical of what our own public health system has done in the last two years. Just uh, this hits a, a note that um, is resonant with my call yesterday with Salani Bauman, who's a graduate student at Yale. She's working on HIV AIDS and the mm -hmm. welfare system in the United States and and. Um, she said something very similar, uh, Tom, that she, I asked her how the pandemic had makes her think about the work differently if it does. And she said exactly, she reads those letters, particularly the early activists around HIV AIDS, hmm. not that she wasn't empathetic to them before. I'm not doing her total justice. You watch yesterday's program and she really, it's great what, how she describes it, but just, she has a, just a better sense of what they were up against um, than she did before because now she's lived, lived through this. Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Catherine Randall and Tom Ewing today, and I want to um, turn to your one of your um, projects, uh, the article, How Did We Get Here? How, why are, what are droplets and aerosols and how far do they go, which appeared in Interface Focus um, just last month. And Catherine, maybe I can turn to you first on this. I'm just going to read um, a sentence here to set up some of what you're talking about in the article. Maybe you can tell us what you uh, what the goals were with this piece. It's really, really in-depth and wonderful piece, and I'll put up the links so everybody can find it. But you, you write, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed major gaps in our understanding of respiratory disease transmission through the air. These gaps led to heterogeneous and shifting transmission mitigation policies from governments and public health organizations. We were kind of talking about that just a second ago. Catherine, um, why did you all set out to write this piece, and what are the main objectives of it? Uh, well, the the initial goal of the, the piece, or I guess the problem motivating that article was um, that you had multiple groups of experts um, talking past each other, basically. You had um, 
public health folks saying, oh, the, the COVID is transmitted through droplets, which is a close contact infection, right? Um, and we have these social distancing guidelines saying, if you stay six feet apart from someone, right, that's droplets fall before they get to six feet so that it, it won't land on your mucous membranes and you won't get infected. Uh, and then you had aerosol scientists saying, from the very early days of the pandemic saying, uh, we've got pretty, we're getting some emerging data indicating that this is not transmitted by droplets. This is, this is aerosolized. This is airborne. There was a study that one of our co-authors, uh, Jose Jimenez did where, uh, there was like a choir in a room and they, and they all stood more than six feet apart, but they still were able to infect each other. So there were, there was emerging data showing that this, this is airborne. Uh, and scientists becoming increasingly frustrated with organizations like the WHO and the CDC, who kept saying, this is not airborne, this is droplets, uh, because they, they were seeing the science and seeing that these particles um, were aerosolized. And so the and, and one of the reasons why Tom and I were brought under the on board to this project is because our, our um, co-authors uh, in the sciences were, were wondering, like, where this discrepancy came from. They were saying, you know, wh what is the reluctance, basically, from these public health organizations to classify this as airborne when we're seeing that these particles can stay in the air uh, and, and public health information um, says, you know, anything under five microns in size is considered an aerosol. Anything over anything over five microns in size is considered a droplet. Uh, and they were wondering where that distinction came from. Basically, how did we where did we get this distinction between a droplet based infection or an airborne based infection? And what are the implications of making that kind of division when we're determining how to implement public health measures uh, and, and uh, infection protocols for COVID? So our, that, that was the main goal basically was to show that uh, there is a historical basis in these terms and in this understanding um, and so I, we, we did this historical tracing of these, of these sources working from the infection, and, uh, infection guidelines from these public health organizations, show, tracing back their citations, who did they cite, where are they getting these definitions from, uh, to show that what the understanding of what we consider airborne has become, has shifted over time and different groups have used that term in different ways. And that may be part of the reason why these groups are talking past each other, because they have different understandings of what we consider to be an aerosol and what we consider to what what sizes of particles we think stay in the air. And is that airborne or is it not or different definitions for that for that word? I see. And I should mention your co-authors, Elsie Marr, J.L. Jimenez and L. Baruiba. Um, so this is a multi-author project, and thanks for setting the stage for it. I mean, what a unique coming together of scholars, and you and Tom were brought in for the historical dimension. Tom, um, so tell us a little bit more about how this kind of debate plays out in the 19th century. And, and I guess also, like, what did you think when you got the email, or maybe you know these people very well, and they said, we need some historians on this stat. That is exactly the email I got. I, you know, I've waited my entire professional life for that email. Um, I had worked with Dr. Marr, Lindsay Marr, previously. Um, I hosted a, a summer seminar funded by the National Endowment for Humanities for K-12 teachers 
1918 flu and the teachers had gone into to Lindsay's lab, um, you know, and she, she talked to them about her research. Um, so this was five years ago. Um, but, you know, once, once, I mean, the, the, the question was, as, as you'll recall in February and, and March of 2020, and, and Catherine just explained this, you know, how is this disease transmitted and the implications of that for, for what can we do um, to, to prevent the spread? And so Dr. Marr, you know, was, was really with, with her colleagues and, and the others beyond the, the ones in this article had really been pushing this different position you know, as, as Catherine just explained, that it was done through aerosols and therefore the, the containment, the mitigation measures are different. Um, you know, masks work the same way, but in terms of social distancing inside and particularly ventilation is much more important if you recognize that it's being transmitted by aerosols. And so, you know, they were, they were really involved in, a, in an advocacy uh, position um, but what, what interested me when in, in the email from, from Dr. Marr, um, you know, and the reason I immediately suggested Catherine as a, as a collaborator, um, you know, was this, 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 the kind of question that they were asking is how did this orthodoxy, this kind of accepted wisdom, not only become so settled in the field, but without ever questioning how it came to be, you know, why it is this way. I mean, they were talking about you know, textbooks in environmental engineering that go back decades that just stated, you know, this is the size of the droplet and this is the size of the aerosol. And because Catherine and I had worked together on a, on a volume about, that was called viral networks. Um, you know, she had spent a lot of time looking at citation networks, you know, how scholars refer to each other. And so that was, that was the historians, you know, kind of approach like, okay, if they cite this person, go back and see who they cite and go back and see who they cite and, and try. And that's basically what um, uh, Katie spent a lot of the summer trying to, to sort through. Um, and I think what interested me and, and, and part of the, the only part of the article I contributed, um, you know, was that early in the 1918 pandemic, there was the same confusion. There was the same uncertainty. How do we explain how this disease is transmitted? And they actually use some of the same images and some of the same metaphors. You know, when you cough, this is where your breath goes. This is where the droplets go. If you're standing this close, you're going to be infected. If you put a handkerchief over your mouth or you cough into your sleeve, that's not going to happen. Um, but they also talked about aerosol. They didn't use aerosol as a word, but they understood it, it could be transmitted through the air. Uh, because of the research on tuberculosis, you know, and they were aware of these other mechanisms for, for transmitting disease, you know, and I think that's where um, watching Dr. Marr, Dr. Jimenez and, and others, you know, try and convince people to think a different way about this science because of the implications for, for public health. Um, yeah, I was, I was very interested in contributing to that, you know, and, and, um, Yes, there was an email, um, and I, you know, replied and said, "This is the person you need to, uh, to to talk to, um, because she's an expert. You know, she's these are her, you know, she's very good at kind of figuring this out. Um, you know, and I think that it's um, there was I, I've, I'm, over the course of the summer of 2020, Dr. Marr, um, you know, was was part of a of a um, session hosted by the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine with 
Dr. Fauci and others for, in, a, in, a, in the audience, you know, and, and they, they persuaded them to think differently about this disease and the, the way they were communicating the, the risk. And part of that was, you know, thinking differently about the history and the way that, that this kind of accepted wisdom had been so settled and yet really wasn't. It was based on a series of kind of misconceptions and <laughs> miscitations, and maybe they didn't do the entire reading. Um, you know, <laughs> they just read the, they just read the abstract. Uh, Catherine has a better sense of that than, than I do. Yeah. So you were in, the, so Tony Fauci's in the audience and you have to tell him that he's been relying on his network too much and hasn't gone back and done the reading he needed to do. That's a tall order. It's, yeah, it's a it's a big ask, right? Yeah. Um, to kind of build on what, what Tom was saying, um, you know, my, my PhD is in rhetoric and writing. Uh, so not history, uh, but part of my training in rhetoric of science and medicine, where my research focuses, uh, is looking at these ideas about science and medicine um, and, and looking at how things became uh, these kind of like the settled science or this kind of settled idea. Um, and like Tom was Tom was saying, you know, it, it, this this tracing back of, of going back to the, the early 20th century and these ideas about airborne infection, uh, like he said, there are a lot of the same sort of resistance to the idea that something could be airborne. In the early 20th century, they were making a lot of inroads into public hygiene. They had, you know, they were purifying water. They were sanitizing surfaces. And it was it was it was so it was going so well. Uh, that from and and the idea of bad air and this was this is one of the big kickers right at the time the idea of bad air was like old that's like miasma theory we're in germ theory now miasma theory is old fashioned and we don't want to like if we say that the air is bad that's like putting science back forty years so there was a lot of professional reluctance I I won't say a lot but there was a professional reluctance to embrace the idea that that the air there could still be something in the air that was bad and so we saw that kind of persuasion trying to happen in the scientific community from you know the 1920s all the way up to the 1950s and 60s until finally um you had researchers able to kind of prove definitive, definitively that trans tuberculosis is transmitted through the air and there were no there was no other way that those guinea pigs could have gotten it it just had to be our study and we just did it through airborne infection and that was really the first disease you had where it was like okay the scientific community accepts that this is like airborne but that was um you know 40 30 40 years of, of researchers sort of like doggedly pursuing this idea of like persuading the public health community that that this is like these these diseases could be airborne measles tuberculosis chickenpox that kind of thing so just to stay with this for a second because the one of the parts of the piece that was really fascinating is the five micron threshold yeah and you know so why does that get so so stuck and i guess i mean just to say a little bit more is it that um an infectious disease can exist both in droplets and in aerosol and so it's a sort of both and kind of situation and you need to take you know the you need to have the mask but you also need to be thinking about ventilation because that seems to be part of the covid messaging problem was that it was an either or kind of thing particularly of thinking about last summer so i guess to any part of that katie you want to pick up but that yeah. i mean the history of science really shows us time and again in public health you know when a standard gets settled 
and the particularly if the public or in the sort of outer rings of the public health you know officialdom understands it and can message it clearly it's hard to move people off of that yes i mean as we've seen public health messaging especially during a crisis it's really difficult especially when the science you're still you're you're discovering things about covid in real time and you're having to shift the messaging in real time and i think last summer we saw that the cdc lost a lot of public trust um, because they, the, because of the inconsistency in messaging or because the, you know, like we had talked about already that very firm, like you don't need masks, masks don't help. And then a few weeks later saying, just kidding, actually, we do want you to wear a mask. Um, and the idea that they had to have a settled idea of what it was and what the guidance could be, um, instead of maybe taking a more, uh, an, an approach that um, embraced the kind of the messiness of, of the scientific discovery. Um, but yeah, I think one of the, the reason, the things that prompt the piece prompted the piece was that it, that, that very kind of rigid um, distinction between droplet and an aerosol and the idea that, and I, and I heard this from people in my circle, they're like, well, if it's air, if it's airborne, then masks are unnecessary. Masks don't, we don't need them. And if it's droplet, then we don't need to stay. We don't need social distancing and we don't need filters, filtration systems and stuff because we can just wear masks and that'll be fine. Um, so there there was I, I, I heard a lot of kind of comments to that effect. Um, but that five micron thing, you know, going back to tuberculosis, what you see in the historical um, tracing these citations back is that uh, there are different different meanings and understandings of the of the word airborne. Hmm. Um, certain early, you know, early researchers in the 1930s said, well, it's airborne because it stays in the air. And that's what we're considering the marker of what could be airborne infection is that a, uh, an infect, a droplet carries or, or a, a particle from your face carries that infectious particle, um, or, a some sort of, some sort of liquid from your face carries the infectious particle and it stays in the air. And you might, and, and that's, that's what airborne is. Um, and then there were respiratory, uh, industrial scientists and respiratory scientists that started talking about airborne as what could be inhaled. And they said, okay, well, there's a different size now. This size of particle stays in the air, but only this size is small enough to be inhaled. And so then you had a whole field of people talking about airborne as, as being respirable. And then with tuberculosis, uh, you suddenly have researchers talking about what size of particle is infectious. And with tuberculosis, uh, infection, uh, what, what causes that, that, that disease starts in the very bottom of your lungs, right? Uh, so, and in order to get down that far, the particles have to be between one and five microns in size. And so since tuberculosis had that study where it was determined to be, or kind of publicly understood as the first verifiably airborne disease, uh, the pathogenesis of tuberculosis then became the sort of benchmark of any sort of airborne um, pathogenesis, where that became what we consider the infectious standard. Um, so, so then we've moved from, okay, airborne is what stays in the air, airborne is what is respirable, and now airborne is what is infectious, but we're actually measuring that against what is infectious for tuberculosis. And so you have um, uh, researchers now saying, 
just because that's how it was for tuberculosis does not mean that you that there aren't larger particles for, of other diseases that can't be infectious in, in other sizes. And so that size is based on what we understand about one disease and kind of the conflating of, of those definitions, but may not be uh, applicable to what we're seeing now. So that's sort of like where that size distinction came from and that rigidity around that size distinction. And that was one of the, the, the outcomes of our, of our article we were hoping would be to challenge that by showing that it had a historical origin uh, that was not necessarily based in robust studies of all these different illnesses and really came out of this uh, historical understanding uh, of and these um, different fields talking about uh, these things in different ways. That's a remarkable piece of historical sleuthing. Thank you for explaining that. Tom, I was, if anything you wanted to add to it, and I'm also interested in the sort of uh, how the history of biological warfare plays into this oh. or the history also of, uh, you know, I mean, context coming back to uh, to World War One and, you know, battlefield, aerosolized battlefield inhalants as a, as a weapon of war is also part of the background, I guess, context of this as well. Yeah, no, I mean, Catherine did a great job of, of, of explaining that. Um, there is one one connection um, with 1918 and, and what you just mentioned in terms of, of weapons. Um, and, I, and I think it's interesting to go back to something we were discussing earlier about uh, kind of messaging on, on the disease and, and public health measures. Um, you know, World War One obviously is is where poison gas was used as a weapon, um, you know, by all sides and, and it had a devastating impact um, on soldiers. Um, there are there are, are rumors early in the pandemic in the United States that the germs had been unleashed by submarines, German submarines off the coast of, of, of um, I think, New York and New Jersey. Uh, and those get picked up and reported almost verbatim by a bunch of newspapers within a, a week or so. But then just a week or two later, the War Department denies that. You know, they say, look, we researched this. Uh, there's no evidence, you know, that this disease was spread by Germans. It was, it came on boats. It spread, you know, from person to person, just like other diseases. And then those rumors go away. Um, you know, I found no evidence that they come back. Um, and this came up again, obviously, you know, with all the discussion about, um, you know, these efforts to find the origin of the virus in Wuhan and was it, did it come from a lab leak and, you know, the implications of that. You know, and I think it's it's really striking in terms of what what Catherine just said, which is, you know, even in a, during a war, I mean, this was September 1918, October 1918, United States was still at war with the Germans at a time when there is, you know, ferocious anti-German propaganda, you know, efforts to, to mobilize the people against this enemy. It was like there was a line there. They didn't want to cross. You know, they didn't want to, they could have exploited these rumors. Um, and I, I don't have archival evidence, you know, that there was any discussion of this, but but my sense is, you know, there may have been this fear that if we start using these rumors and spreading these rumors, then we don't know what people will believe anymore. They may not believe us any, you know, if we if we make these other recommendations. Um, you know, and I think that's something we've really been obviously struggling with for the last year and a half. Um, you know, there there's so much good science out there. There's so much documentation. There's so much explanation. And yet people will seize on uncertainty or changes or miscommunication like the mask 
recommendations early on and then, you know, kind of hold those up and say, look, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, they, they gave us bad information. They backed, they, they retracted it. <laughs> you know, why should we believe them now? They were wrong before. And it's, it's been terribly destructive. Um, you know, we, we're seeing this now with, um, you know, this, the, this, the misinformation about vaccinations, um, you know, and, and despite efforts to, you know, identify each of the pieces of this information and refute them and provide evidence you know, there are still people who, who, who believe them and hold them up. Um, you know, and I think this article is, a, it was, was a really kind of interesting exercise in the sense that on the one hand, even scientists, you know, make mistakes. They repeat things that are, that aren't well substantiated and they, and they repeat those. Um, but, you know, people who have the determination and the knowledge to challenge that and to provide, you know, a, a different explanation can be persuasive, you know, in, in, in leading to a new, uh, a new understanding of, of these, of these really important issues. I think that, you know, this is really, I want to follow up on that. The, um, you know, the public health communication and risk communication generally, I don't think it necessarily says that an expert can't be wrong, but it also is, it has to do with sort of communities of trust and it has to do with also how they explain when they're wrong, that it's not, Therefore, it shouldn't mean that they're completely deplatformed forever, but that they're engaged in a learning process. And they, there's a certain level of kind of humility that's required of the communicator to explain yeah. that they're learning and you're learning. With me. It's a vast literature. I can't characterize it all at once, but I think we I'm, I'm sort of curious about how that played out in 1918, 1919. Tom, let me just stay with you on, on this and then Katie will bring you in, too, because misinformation is one thing because of maybe scientific misunderstanding. And so I'm curious about, you know, how that played into communication efforts during 1918. But what we've seen and what you were just alluding to, Tom, is disinformation and conspiracy thinking, which has been weaponized either for a profit motive, usually, I think, to sell ivermectin um, or for political gain. Uh, which is not, which may have seemed like a kind of a, a moonshot. Like if, if we tell people this thing and we get enough to believe it, I can get elected on that. That seems crazy. Well, that's not a crazy proposition. I don't think in American electoral politics anymore. I don't know if you just saw that one of America's so-called frontline doctors, the ones who were pushing hydroxy early in the pandemic and have been against vaccination has now been named Surgeon General of the state of Florida. So those are not, not only is misinformation not disqualifying anymore? It's perhaps it's actually what's required on your CV to be uh, named to certain political positions. So I guess I'm sort of reaching for analogs across that time stretch mm -hmm. there and wondering, I guess, to put it in more basic question, were there um, conspiracy uh, charlatans in 1918, Tom, who found gain from that? I, you know, the, the most... Uh, it's a great question, and I obviously have been thinking a lot about this for the for the last year and a half. Um, <laughs> I would say the most blatant charlatans uh, in this in 1918 were actually the the uh, anti alcohol lobby, the prohibitionists, uh, who were doing great. You know, a lot of states had already adopted prohibition; they were on their way to to ratifying a 18th Amendment 
Institute, um, that one that, that, that secures prohibition. Uh, but they seized on the epidemic because closing bars and saloons was one of the public health measures. I mean, they closed basically any gathering area. So schools were closed. Churches couldn't have services. Um, you know, restaurants were closed, but bars and saloons were a major gathering area. And they, the prohibitionists, the, the temperance movement just jumped all over that, you know, and, and they came up with all kinds of really far-fetched, um, you know, kind of explanations that the influenza was associated with excessive drinking and alcohol consumption and socializing. And a lot of that had to do with um, class and gender and anti-German sentiments and so on. Um, the, the alcohol lobby, of course, argued that, that, that liquor was a cure for influenza. So they, they had their own issues. Um, but generally speaking, in 1918, you do not have the political divisions, you know, that we saw in 2020 and 2021. You know, there were there were disagreements about the right kind of public health measures, um, but usually they were either jurisdictional, you know, so the state had one view and the city had a different or the city health department had one view and the business owners had a different school school boards had one view city government had a different view um you know and they they usually explain why they were making the arguments they were doing and so other than for example like i said that that u-boat example is really one of the few where you can kind of say there was this possibility of a kind of organized misinformation campaign and it got stopped it didn't really get this circulation I mean, there were definitely quacks, you know, there were, there were all kinds of cures being marketed uh, for influenza. Um, you know, Vicks Vapor Rub does great <laughs> during the epidemic by claiming it's a, it's a preventative for, for influenza. You know, so I think you always have that, um, you know, the, those commercial interests trying to take advantage of the fear around the disease and so on. Um, but not the, not the, the kind of deliberate, willful disbelief of authorities because of, a, you know, particular political perspective. Katie, did yeah. you want to comment on any any part of that? Yeah, uh, you know, when you think about the the channels of information now, it. Uh, oral the the oral transmission of information is has a very long and storied history right and that stuff doesn't get written down in ways that we would have access to them now so certainly there could have been disinformation spread that way but when you think about like official channels of information um much much lim much more limited then than now as in terms of we have social media we have uh, a variety of, of news channels and websites and and all sorts of places you can find things outside of like the official numbers published in the newspaper, right? Or or a, a blurb from a doctor that goes out in a number of periodicals. Um, and I'm not, I mean, Tom knows more about than I, that than I do, but just on the communication side, like our communication landscape is just vastly different than it was a hundred years ago. And I think um, we're still a little bit confused by that. Like, we're not really sure. Um, you know, there's this idea that if you pre just present the facts in, uh, you just tell me, you know, here are the facts. Here's the, here's the data that people will say, oh, well, I'm convinced that is excellent. And now I know what I can do, but that's not how people work. People are persuaded by their values and their priorities, their identities. Um, and you're absolutely right, Scott, is term, in terms of uh, risk communication, right? I think we saw a lot last year 
that people were so they they thought that if they admitted that they had done something wrong or said something wrong that they would lose authority hmm. and they thought that, that was the most important thing in that communication process instead of focusing on what would build trust like you said and so people turned to um other sources of information that validated their fears in different ways uh, and they said, well, I, I feel like I can trust this source um, and not what's coming from Fauci or or what have you. You know, listening to you talk, thank you for that, Kitty, that, um, you know, makes me wonder. This is historical malpractice, what I'm about to say, but, the, uh, you know, that one wonders a scenario in which you had a, a Facebook or social media in 1918, how that, you know, because that's this is the, the the independent variable here, the you know, social media and other forms of communication that you're exploring a little bit here, Katie, is a really powerful way to think about that. And it's an important way to think about disaster more generally. You know, oftentimes we're, we say, well, what is the what is the event that happened? You know, let's focus on the rainfall totals or let's focus on the uh, understanding the the source, you know, where's patient zero, instead of thinking more broadly about the the everyday aspects of, of life. How do we communicate? Whom do we trust? Where do we get medical information? And yeah, those are those for most people. Those are the boring parts because they're used to them. They're not exotic in any way. They're not cinematic. It's just Facebook. But what we've seen is that those vulnerabilities in those systems are the exact ones that have allowed COVID at least to run rampant in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, there are researchers that focus on digital communication practices and social media. And that's that's kind of outside of my my lane there. But um What's it's been interesting and go and just kind of casually looking through the Facebook groups about ivermectin and where to get it and where to buy it. And because I'm so interested by what motivates people um, to this this kind of solution. Um, and they're not eschewing medical authority like a lot of folks in those groups are saying, well, my cousin is a doctor or I'm a nurse and I say this works and or and, and so they're they're still appealing to medical authority, it's just completely outside of that kind of official communication channel um, that maybe they feel that they can trust less, which I think is really interesting. You're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Catherine Randall and Tom Ewing. My guests have very kindly agreed to stay a few more minutes. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, there's another part of it I wanted to get to. Um, Tom, you've been um, uh, extremely a active also in writing about um, Pandemic, the pandemic as a, as a way to approach history. Uh, you published a couple of articles. Um, you did one for NEH um, on using history, the last pandemic, using history to guide us in the difficult present. So, you know, this is for the history teachers who are, who are paying attention, um, you know, to this conversation. Um, what, what are some of the highlights from your thinking along those those lines using 1918 as a way to teach COVID or in a, in a sense, what we've been talking about here today, how do you use COVID to excite people's interest to think again about, about 1918? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned history teachers. I, I have to thank teachers for all everything they've done for the last year. I was about 30 oh. minutes into my first in-person class wearing a mask and thought, Oh my, you know, like, these people did it all year. Um, yeah, and I think this was like as I, I think I mentioned. Um, you know, I, I hosted two NEH seminars for K twelve teachers, National Endowment for Humanities, um, and in both of those seminars, we we went up to Bethesda, Maryland, and met with scientists from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, David Morris, 
<clears throat> science advisor to Dr. Fauci and Jeffrey Taubenberger, who coordinates the um, the vaccine research on influenza um, for, for the virology lab. You know, and I'm, I'm remembering in both of their presentations, the question came up, you know, could the Spanish flu happen again? And they were quite confident that it wouldn't, you know, that, that there were, first of all, there's enough vaccine, you know, avail, you know, there's, there's enough known about vaccines, enough people get vaccines, that there would not be sufficient, um, you know, exposure and infection to generate that. And there are antibiotics, there are ways to treat the bacterial pneumonia that caused a lot of the deaths in 1918. And, and it, it wouldn't happen, you know, that yes, there could be a severe influenza and, a, and particularly an influenza that was not, you know, prevented well by the particular type of vaccine we had that year. Um, but I, 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 in thinking back, I'm like, gosh, they were, they were pretty optimistic <laughs> and, and I'm wondering what they would say now. Um, you know, and I, so I think that's certainly one part of it, um, in terms of thinking about this pandemic and thinking about historical pandemics is on the one hand, you know, we need to be a whole lot more, uh, modest <laughs> and realistic about what we think is going to happen and what we predict is going to happen. But I think also appreciative of what we, we can learn, you know, from this history and, and going forward, I think, you know, starting in February, 2020, people started asking me, you know, you study 1918, I'm like, you know, what can we learn from that? And, and it's interesting because the answer I gave then, I think has been pretty consistently the answer I've, I've given, which is listen to public health experts, but understand why they're saying what they're saying and what they're recommending which I think is different, I hope, from listen to public health experts and do what they say. Um, you know, we, we saw with, with Catherine, you know, I think really give her a good example of that where, you know, early on public health experts were wrong about how the disease is transmitted and the implications of that in terms of social distancing and wearing masks and ventilation and so on. But if you go back and ask, well, why were they making that recommendation at the time? Part of it was not understanding the science but I think part of it was also like, we need to make this really simple for people. They need to think about not coughing, not sneezing, not breathing on people close to them, wearing masks, staying apart. So the kind of introducing aerosol transmission would have further complicated that. It would have been harder for people to understand what they needed to do. Um, you know, there was a lot of bad information at that time. I mean, every time I go in a store and I see the, you know, the six feet markers, like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, all of the plexiglass shields that were put up that don't prevent any kind of aerosol transmission, you know, so I think to me, it's like, think about what you're being asked to do. Think about why you're being asked to do it. And then also why you need to do these things, not so much for your own health, but for the health of everybody else. Um, and I think that's a consistent, that was a message in 1918. And it's, it, I hope it's been a, a consistent message now. I mean, I, you know, I go back to December of 2020, January, 2021, when, you know, we knew the vaccines worked, they were starting to be rolled out. I was keeping track of when my father was getting one, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, like I, like we all knew, you know, and I'm like, why didn't I understand how resistant people would be to get getting vaccinated? Like that just didn't, 
didn't occur. I mean, I knew there was discussion about it. You know, we knew there was a vaccine resistance and hesitancy in anti-vaxxers, but it just never occurred to me that, you know, 40% of adults would just refuse to do this. Um, and I, you know, completely misjudged that, misunderstood that. Yeah, I think, um, I, I think one of the things we'll have to address going forward. And I think that this, we see this historically and, and in the contemporary moment is getting past the idea that, that illness is tied to morality. Hmm. We've seen this in multiple pandemics. Um, the, well, I'm, I'm a healthy, good person. I don't need to wear a mask. We saw that in the early 20th century where folks were, the idea of, of being a, a vector of disease was associated with being unclean or not white or not rich, right? And so rich white folks were like, why I'm not, I can't be sick. I can't get people sick. And I think we saw that last year as well um, from political leaders and kind of that, that trickling down of, I don't need to wear a mask because I'm not a safety concern. I would not put my children in danger. I would not put my friends or my communities in danger. I'm not sick, I'm not unclean. And, you know, Scott, that goes back to the article you were reading about the war and thinking about why World War One got this like the memorials and the recognition, whereas the the flu and all these deaths didn't. Right. Disease. And, and we see this with modern warfare. Right. We don't have the clean cut World War One, World War Two. We won party in the street. You know, it's it's not quite the same now. And it's much messier. But I think the Ill, the idea of illness um, and the idea that all those deaths happened, not because you went to fight a very clear bad guy and your troops died honorably, right? It's more like friendly fire, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, this, this transmitted through our communities and mm -hmm. there wasn't um, a, a, a person that we could um, kind of take out to, to stop it, right? It was us and it was, it was our communities and our folks. And I think that makes the whole thing much more difficult to process. And like Tom, I don't think I would have understood that as well had I not lived through it. And I see people's reluctance to even deal with those numbers and process the severity of what's happened. Um, and they still are resistant to, to public health measures to prevent increased spread. And so I, don't, I think we don't want to think of ourselves as um as people, as um, we, we wanted there to be a clear uh, story and we get that with these war, these earlier wars and we don't get that with pandemics. Um, and how do you, how do you memorialize that? Right. What's the story? How, where's the, where's the victory? Um, and how do you talk about all those deaths without talking about how you failed and how your community failed? And that's, that's really hard. And I don't think, I think we're going to run into the same problem with COVID. I don't think we're going to have, I mean, we don't, we're not going to have the reading of the names like we do for 9-11, right? We're not going to read the lists of victims from, from COVID. I don't think we'll do that. That was the last, that's where I wanted to kind of bring us full circle. Catherine, you completely anticipated what I wanted to ask you, you know, that stretch across time of the absence of the 1918 memorials and where that leaves us today. I'm deeply disturbed by that. Um, I in part because I think memorials play an important role in in healing, in closure and in healing and sense making in the moment, but also because they should be a sentinel for future generations um, for people to stop and think that something is unthinkable has actually happened and that maybe they can percolate some thoughts about about that as they go in their daily 
in their daily lives. I think you've drawn a really nice sort of arc there. It's not a particularly hopeful one, but I appreciate your honesty. Yeah, Tom, um, your thoughts on what, what are you there in the same camp with Katie on that and memorials across 1918 to the present? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are actually a lot of memorials to victims of the 1918 Spanish flu. They're just not identified that way. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at any list of um, soldiers who died in World War One, my guess is that anywhere from a quarter to half of them are going to be victims of the Spanish flu. They're just not identified that way. Um, we have a memorial here on campus. I was just talking about my class, you know, 13 of the 26 names, well, six for sure, died of the flu, you know, and wow. so they're, they're there. They're just not recognized in that way because they're folded into, you know, the men who fought in the war, who died in the war, who are memorialized in that way. Um, you mentioned uh, the previous episode on the, on the uh, HIV AIDS. Um, certainly for someone of my generation, the, the AIDS quilt um, was a was a major kind of event because you know not only did it did it put names to to victims but the physical display of the of the number of names you know each of them having a square on this quote which was laid out on the uh, on the National Mall you know really kind of brought I think out how many how the impact of this epidemic and I you know, there was a, an exhibit a few mo- weeks ago on the National Mall, one one flag, one white flag for all of the, at that point, I think 680,000 victims. Um, I don't think it had the same impact as the AIDS quilt. You know, it just doesn't doesn't get people to, to think about um, the effect on this, both quantitative terms, but also individually. Um, and it does concern me. You know, I mean, I think that I very much agree with, with Catherine the the lesson from this is you know what do we remember and what do we do differently in these situations going going forward because there will be more of them i'll get a chance to uh talk about that uh, issue tomorrow uh tom i'm going to have suzanne furstenberg who's the creator of the um the memorial you just mentioned in the national oh. mall cool uh, and so I want to, and I think she's, she's very, ref, she's an artist and she's very reflective on the impact that that, that can have or not have. And I'll, um, uh, I'll, these are some of the issues we'll be talking about tomorrow. So thank you for you. You both are anticipating everything I need to, to say next, which is great. Um, so we, we're out of time. In fact, I've been very greedy with my guest's time today, but I've learned a lot and uh, want to thank Tom Ewing and Catherine Randall for the work you're doing for the huge outpouring of really complicated and interesting um, historical and um, rhetorical work that you're doing in this time, communications history. Um, and everybody can check out their articles. I'll be sure to, to send those out via Twitter and, and let's all retweet and read and teach these articles. And so I want to thank you, Tom, and thank you, Catherine, and remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls usually at 6 p.m. Eastern time on weekdays. And do join me tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern, Eastern time for uh, Suzanne Furstenberg. Tom and Catherine, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow.